6 p.m. Thank you for tuning in to KBUT, and thank you to all of us, uh, all of you out there who are joined on our video conference for this virtual town hall brought to you uh, by KBUT in partnership with news agencies in the area as well as Gunnison County. Uh, I just want to make sure that we can check in with our panelists to say hello. First of all, we have Joni Reynolds, Director of Public Health. Hi, Joni. All right. And uh, Jonathan Houck, Board of County Commissioners, thank you for joining us this evening. You bet. Thanks for having us. CJ Malcolm, Emergency Services and member of the county response team to COVID-19. Thank you. This thank is, you. Uh, I think, I think your first time on the show, but we've already had Joni on our show. Jody Leonard is the uh, um, viral infection specialist for Gunnison Valley Health. And it's been a few weeks, but we're glad to have you back, Jody. Thank you for joining us. We want to let everyone Thanks, know. Chris. We want to let everyone know that they can call in and ask their questions um, to KBUT by calling 970-349-7444 and information to join the virtual town hall virtually so you can see everyone's shining faces uh, is available at KBUT.org right now. Uh, Jody, I'd like to start out by asking just for an up-to-date, you know, current situation um, for what we're looking at in the healthcare system, specifically what's going on at the senior care center. Can we get an update on that? Sure, Chris. Um, so the Senior Care Center is, of course, one of our uh, places that we try to protect first and foremost right off the bat at the start of this incident. And so thus far, we've had three residents that tested positive. Um, two of them were brought to the hospital with potential symptoms and tested positive while they were still in the hospital. And one of the residents had uh, a very mild set of symptoms uh, at the SCC and was not brought to the hospital, but we went ahead and tested that, that resident as well, and they tested positive. In the process, we've discovered, you know, four other, three or four other residents that we thought, mm, are these symptoms, you know, related to COVID or not? Let's test them and make sure. And uh, lo and behold, they were negative. The nice thing that um, we're kind of using is we haven't had anybody with new symptoms uh, for about 10 days now. So according to the state health department, um, although they say two or more positives would be considered an outbreak, if nobody develops symptoms and nobody is tested and nobody has resulted positive in a 14-day period, that outbreak is, is then deemed over. In response to, you know, with three, obviously we met that criteria to say that there is an outbreak. Um, they assigned, meaning the, they being the state health department, assigned an outbreak task force that is led by uh, an epidemiologist from the CDC who has reached out to us at GBH as well as the administration at the SEC and working with public health locally as well to make all the recommendations needed for any kind of outbreak like this. And um, luckily, we, we were in a good position and took a lot of action right away and everything they said we have done, we did ahead of time and all the right things were put in place. So um, hopefully we have curbed any further cases. Um, we have not had a death related to COVID-19 from an SEC resident. I wanna emphasize that. And I just, I also wanna point out the, the symptoms that we find in, in the elderly population are not always going to look like the symptoms we see in the general population. So um, the residents at the SEC and, and likewise across the valley, we're keeping a real close eye on the elder population 
for things like changes in mental status and changes in communication and things that might reflect uh, a potential infection, but not necessarily things that we see in the general population like fever and cough and stuff like that. So that's, that's pretty much where we're at right now, Chris. And I think that answers your question to the best of my ability. Sure, and I brought that up because I know that some people might be aware that around Colorado, um, there have been a large number of deaths um, resulting from COVID-19 cases in nursing homes. Um, and um, I just had not heard you know, an update recently on that, so it's good to know what's going on. What happens if the situation gets worse at the senior care center? Well, great question. That's why we all work real hard every day to make sure we're doing everything we can to prevent that from happening. But we, of course, would um, utilize this task force that we've been assigned and get their recommendations. And this is stuff based on um, experiences that have been seen across the nation, not just Colorado, uh, as to what the best potential um, source of action or course of action would look like for these residents, whether it be we we take everyone who is potentially symptomatic out of the SCC and go through a swabbing process. Um, we've talked about many protocols in that regard, none that have needed to take action thus far. Um, we are looking at uh, options for the residents that are currently in the hospital that tested positive with symptoms and potentially keeping them there longer than we normally would have just to protect the other residents who um, hopefully we're not exposed and will not develop symptoms. So there's a lot of steps being taken like that in terms of uh, protecting who is still there versus looking at what if the situation gets worse because we feel like we're, we've put everything in place to prevent that from happening. Um, when this first occurred, um, the senior care center, of course, was you know put on lockdown, isolation, uh, and uh, I, I think you shared with the incident command team that I believe you said your burn rate when it came to personal protective equipment like gloves, masks, and gowns essentially was tripled. Um, that you were you were using three times as much. Uh, of that equipment in a day than you would normally be doing. What what has that done to, to uh, Gunnison County's supply of personal uh, protective equipment? What's the situation there? Can we get more? Are you concerned? Go ahead. Yeah. So the the hospital system itself has um, quite a good stockpile. We've been able to continue ordering through allocation um, of of certain items with our vendors. We also uh, have continued to order through Health and Human Services to be able to uh, replenish that stockpile if needed. Currently, we're keeping what HHS has in their stock with HHS and using it as a, a backup plan if we get into a crisis mode at the hospital. That would be our first go-to. But we also have um, a whole team of people in our logistics department through the incident command team looking at other vendors and other ways that we can order to replenish for the long term. So we're already planning on stockpiles for this potential second and third waves that might happen months to, to uh, as, as long as six, eight months out and what that would look like. And are we going to have enough supply for that? So right now we're sitting pretty good. Um, we have implemented uh, several techniques that are encouraged by the CDC and the state health department to preserve the PPE that we have. Um, 
everything from uh, we've switched from disposable uh, paper gowns to reusable gowns. And so our, our brand new senior care center has a laundering facility uh, built within it for this very purpose. Um, not necessarily the pandemic purpose, but for turning laundry around quickly. <laughs> and so we are able to use gowns and then put them in the laundry system and reuse them instead of having to supply with disposables. We're also reusing goggles. That's typically a thing that is not considered when you're looking at stockpiles for a pandemic situation. Um, but we have gone through manufacturers to get their recommendations on how to clean them and reuse them. We're looking at our N95 mask supply and considering ways that we can actually uh, sterilize them. Obviously, we have the sterilization equipment in our operating room. So um, many of the facilities, or I, sh I should say vendors that make these products are now coming out with manufacturer's guidelines on how to properly sterilize a mask, how many times you can sterilize it and reuse it, et cetera. Um, how we set up that entire process of where's the dirty go and where do the clean get stored and how do you mark how many times it's been processed and that all takes planning and and a little bit of legwork but that's one of the ways that we're working on really keeping our our supply up sure and um just one more follow-up on that i was wondering if you could just give us an idea of, you know, there's a lot of conversations about supply and demand around uh, ventilators, nationally ventilators. Um, I've also heard pharmaceuticals for treating COVID-19. Um, uh, I know that Gunnison Valley Health is a small rural hospital. I'm wondering what personnel staffing is like right now. Um, and, and I've also heard things like thermometers and conversations. Are there any other items that you're worried about in a supply and demand um, scenario? Yeah. Yeah, so currently at GVH, we typically, um, any other year you would ask me, I would say we have two ventilators. <laughs> now we have four for in-house in use. Um, and we the, the EMS department has four transport ventilators, which means we could technically put eight people on a ventilator if we absolutely had to. Um, what I want to emphasize about that is that uh, Gunnison Valley Hospital does not have an ICU. Uh, and having an extra ventilator does not necessarily just make an ICU. <laughs> you have to have the st staffing and personnel who can actually run um, a unit like that and manage those patients. Uh, I would say short term, we could handle that for, um, you know, maybe 24 or 48 hours. We typically would take a patient like that and send them outside of our facility to where there is an ICU, whether that's Montrose, uh, Grand Junction or, or Denver. Um, but for now, we can manage that. And then as far as thermometers and, and other small supplies, I've got to give a shout out, even as, as um, difficult as it probably was, you know, Gunnison Valley family practitioners, they loaned us thermometers when they closed their town clinic of Crested Butte. Um, other agencies said, oh, well, we've cut back on, on um, our visits and we're not, we're not using that many clinic rooms right now. So here, borrow this. And and they have supplied things like that, thermometers and whatnot, to um, our screening site that we do every week and, and other events that we've put on to, to um, really manage the COVID situation. Uh, personnel is an interesting one because that's an ever-fluxing <laughs> moving target. I will say, uh, in general, uh, world 
world numbers put about 10% of your healthcare personnel, you'd expect about 10% to get sick. And so we went, we went with that and ran with it and tried to m mitigate the risks to our healthcare staff. I will say at this point, of 420 staff at Gunnison Valley Health as an organization whole, we've had less than 2% of our staff test positive. Now that doesn't mean that we haven't had symptomatic people or um, the potential false negatives. I, I understand those risks, um, but it is springtime and it was, you know, the tail end of flu season. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be pretty happy about the two percent um, that employee health has to really manage and work through and figure out when can you get back to work. So we're we're doing okay personnel wise, especially in the regard that we've cut back on all of our elective procedures in the OR and other departments are minimizing. Um, patient loads, and so we have reallocated those staff to help in other areas, such as um, the senior care center. Um, those staff are actually filling shifts there and making sure PPE is, is looking good and that um, the protocols are in place and everybody's doing the same thing across the board. So we've really done a great job for education purposes, reallocating those staff. And I think lastly, as far as drugs go, uh, I had a conversation today with our lead pharmacist, and um, we currently, um, well, let me just put this out there. Most shortages for drugs are actually in the area of sedation um, that is required when you have long-term intubation, so primarily in an ICU setting. Uh, because we don't typically keep those patients here, um, what we consider a shortage is, is really not related to any of those medications. Our supply of maybe, you know, 20 vials of something that keeps you totally numb while you're intubated is something that uh, 20 vials would not pass. It, it, that would be a shortage at a place like St. Mary's Hospital. So we have plenty of supply for our normal operations, plus a little extra to manage the potential that we have to intubate multiple people. Um, this is not a new problem. There's been shortages for pain medicines and sedation medicines across the the nation for many, many months. And um, if we needed to, you know, GBH has the supply to maintain multiple COVID patients all at once for, I wouldn't even venture a guess, but at least a few days. Sure. I hope that answers that question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I ask these questions again, because we hear that a lot of that in the national conversation. And then I think listeners may be like, well, you know, what's happening here on the ground in Gunnison. So thank you for providing those updates uh, on this situation, of course, that changes day to day, and we, we appreciate just kind of knowing what's what's happening. Uh, so I should have mentioned at the top of the hour that uh, this is being co-hosted by my cohort, Andrew Sandstrom, who's a public information officer with Gunnison County, uh, and he's going to be help, helping us field some of the, your questions, uh, our listeners or Zoom attendees uh, on the video conference call. A lot of the conversation recently has been about public health orders, and uh, Andrew, I believe, has some questions uh, regarding that yeah and so uh you know as many of you know uh Joni uh released a sixth amended public health order um this weekend um and so Joni the first question um directly directed at you is uh why did the changes occur between the fifth and sixth public health orders um and what are the main ramifications for um non-resident homeowners um and others thanks Andrew so really after the first week after the uh, fifth revised public health orders came out, 
that gave me an opportunity to literally review hundreds of exemption requests. And that gave me quite a bit of data to look at, including kind of the patterns that were coming through in, in those requests. And they, I categorized them into three major categories, and that really is reflected in the change in the public health orders. So the first category being individuals that had been in the county and had been here for a significant period of time. Some individuals, as long as when the outbreak first was recognized or before the outbreak was even recognized. And those individuals, for an array of reasons, it wasn't safe for them to travel at this time during the outbreak. And then other individuals that aren't here but wanted to come here for also an array of reasons, um, for checking things, for picking things up, for coming um, to our beautiful county uh, just for the aesthetics. And again, there was a number of reasons why it wasn't safe for individuals to travel here at this time. Uh, due to altitude changes, due to the outbreak uh, occurring around the state and the nation. And then lastly, a category of folks that had recently arrived. And so I reflected those changes in that most recent uh, set of public health orders. If you've been here and you've been here for more than two weeks, you don't need an exemption. You can remain in the county. You just have to follow the public health orders. If you just arrived recently in the last two weeks, you need to apply for an exemption. And if you haven't arrived in the county, there's a limited number of reasons that folks could come into the county for essential services. But other than those reasons, there's a, um, it's prohibiting individuals from coming to the county. So along those lines, can you elaborate on some of those reasons why somebody might be allowed to come in and travel in? Uh, I mean, if an owner had a mechanical problem, say a water leak or a boiler problem um, at their home, would they be allowed to come into the county to fix that problem? Yeah, I think the um, requests were as um, wide an array as you can imagine. And so everything from an individual whose uh, family member um, was at St. Mary's Hospital because they'd been transferred out of our community and they were gonna be returning to our community and they needed help when they returned to the community to someone who had a unique situation uh, related to a home repair. And, and what I would encourage is I'm looking at all of those individually, and I'm looking at all the information that they provided. And if I have questions that remain, then I'm reaching out to get additional information. But again, looking through them with a safety lens. And then lastly, I would just recommend that anybody who's not here currently in the community, just think about a plan. If they were to have an issue or a concern at their home, is there someone that could help them with that situation? Now, another piece to the, the sixth uh, amendment um, was surrounding folks in, in Hinsdale County and the far-flung reaches of, of Marble and other areas in the county. Um, can you speak at all to uh, what you changed in that portion and why? Yeah, what became evident that was there were some individuals that traveled into the county for essential services. For example, folks that live in Lake City that needed to travel into Gunnison to get groceries just for that limited purpose and just for that limited time, still complying with all, the, all other aspects of the public health order. There were other situations in the North Fork of the Valley where folks can't get some services without across a county line. And so that was really what I was considering there was trying to look at those unique situations in those unique communities. Now, shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, it, it seems that we're seeing some, some positive numbers. There are fewer people uh, self-reporting with symptoms. Uh, it appears that we're maybe starting to level off. Um, and then at the same time, it, it seems as though 
we are enacting even more restrictions on the citizens. Is, is there a reason for those added restrictions at this time? So thanks for that, Andrew. And, and I do understand that this, um, that this is a difficult time. It's hard for me to imagine that it's actually only been a month since the first set of public health orders were issued. First set were issued on March 14th and what a world of change we've seen in that brief um, period of time, 35 days later, and we've had now um, the sixth amended public health orders. And my um, impression is that as we continue to march forward, this landscape will change, the situation with the outbreak will change, and the public health orders will have to reflect that change. Actually, initially our goal was, all those days ago, was to flatten the curve and to protect our healthcare system from being overwhelmed and having critically ill patients along with exploding numbers of folks that were infected in the community. And I would agree with you, Andrew, that all signs indicate that we have been successful in that collectively as a community because of the unified efforts from the individual community members and citizens across this valley that have implemented measures to adjust their daily life in order to prevent this disease from spreading throughout the community. We've seen consecutive days go by now with a decreased number of cases and consecutive days go by now without having our healthcare system overrun with critically ill patients or patients needing to be flown out and transferred because of their critical ill status. But the reality is what we're doing is not in a bubble. And there are other communities that are in different stages of outbreak, and you can see that in our state, across the nation, as well as across the globe. And so when I'm looking at the public health orders, I'm considering both from in the community and outside the community and how best to really protect our community and manage and continue the progress that we've made. And so, you know, so with that, we've made progress. Uh, you know, are we any closer uh, to lifting any of our public health orders? Um, is there a trigger point that you're looking for to, to start easing those restrictions? There are, and I do think we are getting closer. I think every day we get closer to being in a different stage of this um, event. I think the challenge is where we are now, I think likely in retrospect, we'll be able to all be able to tell where we were and where we went on this path, but telling it real time is more challenging than telling it in retrospect. And so on a real time continuum, what I would tell you is right now, I think we are on the plateau, but it's a pretty narrow plateau. And where the next stage is, I think is actually gonna be a pretty elaborate dance. And a dance that probably has just to equate maybe some complicated steps. And those steps are gonna to have to be thoughtful and they're gonna to have to be well rehearsed and managed in order to prevent us from falling off a cliff. And what I see as falling off that cliff or that mesa or that plateau is additional infections in our community that could lead to a spike or a second outbreak that could have the same significant implications for our community but maybe in the context of having other communities in that same crisis mode. One of the advantages of the, for us for being early in this outbreak across our state was that we had access to those tertiary care centers, places that could help us to manage those critically ill patients. That may not be true if we were to have a secondary spike. So I do think that we're getting closer and there are considerations I'm thinking, many around how we can move forward and I have a team that's actually working and helping around research and really investigating the science and what we have available. One of the real linchpins in my mind is testing and having testing available, I think is one of the critical steps. 
And so, you know, on that, that same note, um, when is the county looking at ending the stay-at-home order? I believe our current public health orders uh, end at the end of the month, whereas the states end uh, on 426. Absolutely. Ours do um, currently expire on April 30th. And as you know, the different amendments, some of those amendments have reflected the dates. And so I don't have a date certain yet when that change will occur. Oh, we will coordinate that, and I will continue to monitor what's happening both at the state level, the regional level, and the local level to be able to work towards modify, modifying those orders. And so, you know, leading into this, you know, we're asking um, these non-resident homeowners to, to stay away from their homes. Um, and Jonathan, this one would be directed at you. Um, is there any talk of prorating or refunding property taxes to the non-resident homeowners who, who can't come? So, uh, you know, I think there's a couple uh, things to, to, to answer that question with. One is that uh, the Board of County Commissioners doesn't actually have the statutory authority to refund or rebate uh, property taxes. And, and I think even if we did, uh, a reminder uh, is that uh, the county collects the property tax for many different uh, special districts and municipalities and then distributes them uh, to those folks. So for example, the, the school district has a large share of folks property tax goes to the school district, but also MetREC, the fire protection districts up and down Valley, library districts, the Upper Gunnison River Water Conservancy District, um, as well as the municipalities each get a, a small bit of, of property tax. So. Uh, to answer the question, one is that the amount of property tax that someone pays does not all go to Gunnison County, and two, the uh, county, the Board of County Commissioners doesn't have the statutory authority to do that. All right, thank you, Jonathan. Um, pivoting a little bit again, um, you know, are we concerned uh, that more and more visitors will come in using you know mobile homes and campers to stay in the valley, and uh, you know what are our options for? enforcing orders in these circumstances. Joni, I believe that one's directed at you. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, luckily right now in the season we're in, it's, it's kind of the mud season. It's usually not the season that attracts most people into um, Gunnison County. And one of the things the public health orders have afforded us is to buy some time, some time to be able to get some of those underpinnings in place that are really essential to continue to protect the community, such as testing, being able to have testing that's more real time, not testing that we have to send off and wait for results to come back, but testing that can be done right at the point of care or right here in the county. Testing around uh, what is our current rate of infection look like on a mass scale, uh, meaning doing more testing than just those that uh, we screen that come into the screening sites. And also looking at immunologic testing. So where are we at? How many folks have been exposed and maybe have antibodies or don't have antibodies? Those are gonna be critical pieces of information for us to have. But in general, folks coming into the county in any traffic into the county can present some challenges for the county in regards to the limited services we have. Still um, sparse in some areas. Um, in our own grocery stores, it's still limited as far as our capacity to be able to respond to any spike and be able to handle car accidents or other type of um, injuries. So again, I think there are risks and looking at those will be part of my consideration as I think about future public health orders. And so, you know, within this revised sixth public health order, 
um, it, it says that only Gunnison County residents are allowed on the public lands. And, and so with the stay at home orders statewide, no one's allowed to travel here. But, you know, what about those non-resident homeowners who, you know, have, have gotten an exemption? Um, will they continue to be able to access these public lands? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Uh, so was Gunnison County's ban on non-resident homeowners a precautionary measure or was the county seeing a surge in non-resident homeowners coming here? Um, and, you know, initially we strongly encouraged them to leave and go to their primary residence and then it, it you know, the orders got uh, stepped up and then, you know, was that because we were seeing a massive influx uh, of non-residents coming into the valley? Yeah, so it was both precautionary as well as seeing trends of increased non-residents coming into the valley. So it was both to answer your question. And really, um, some of the information we were getting was anecdotal and some of it was actually related on traffic and what was being seen around the community, everything from um, folks coming in uh, to sort of escape their community and be here where they thought it was safer. Frankly, this valley has done such an impressive job of really working towards flattening that curve that it looks attractive for others that are seeing uh, really scary scenes in their hospitals and really sc scary scenes um, in their community clinics. And so here, um, the community's done an amazing job. It's a place that is attractive, not just because it's aesthetically beautiful and it's a wonderful place to be if you um, are restricted. It's also a place that has done an amazing job in this outbreak. And so I think that um, had its own attractiveness. And so that was a concern and that was uh, one of the major considerations when I looked at revising the public health orders. And, and I think this next question could be directed at, at Joni or Jonathan. Um, with these new orders uh, put in place, uh, it, you know, it, in some circles, it, it feels that maybe it's put a rift between the full-time and part-time residents here in the Valley. Um, you know, threats of people, uh, you know, on riding on cars that they shouldn't be here or, you know, people calling other people out because they have a different license plate. Um, you know, it, do these orders or could these orders lead to an unsafe environment for some of the part-time residents when they can return? So I want to reckon back to just one aspect and then I'll, I'll turn it to Jonathan to share more. But for me, um, the collective loss that we've experienced can help explain some of the responses that we're seeing in the community. It's reasonable that there will be fear and that folks that have worked really hard to protect themselves are fearful of what the impact could be in their neighborhood. And that reasonable fear just has to be moderated. And I think that's partly what's really the important message for folks to think about. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll build on, on uh, Joni's response. I think, one, this, this is new for everyone and the frustrations uh, that folks are experiencing in our community. And when I say community, I'm gonna be really clear. When I say community, I mean folks who are full-time residents, second homeowners, university students, our guests and our visitors. Our community is a, is a pretty wide swath of folks uh, that, that really come from uh, different places and contribute and, 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 and give a lot to this community in lots of different ways. Um, and there has been frustration expressed uh, and understandably so um, by folks who are full-time residents, by folks who are second homeowners. Um, but I think what's interesting from at least the perspective I have because of the, the volume of correspondence and input I get uh, from from different members of our community, is I'm ac actually seeing a lot of folks that understand 
that these orders have to be really restrictive. And this is the best available science to, to limit that community spread. Uh, that being said, um, I've, I've had locals, uh, full-time residents express their frustration in the behavior of some of our full-time residents. Um, and I've had as much positive uh, returns uh, in emails and, and voice messages and text from second homeowners who say, hey, I get it. And, and there's some that are very upset with the messaging uh, as well. And so one thing I think to, to point out is that uh, the results uh, are, are, are really positive people's frustrations boiling over uh, is to be expected. But the best thing we can do as a community is expect folks, uh, one, to start with themselves. How can I be a good example of following uh, the rules and the regulations set forth in the order? Um, but I think the other place too that I wanna point out is that uh, think about the source of, uh, of uh, frustrations. You know, I, I try to utilize social media as little as possible uh, to get uh, a good barometer of where things are. I'd rather talk to people, correspond with them directly, email uh, and things of that nature. And so I think there's some bad behavior out there uh, for sure. And I think we, we've all witnessed it uh, across the board, but I think what we see more of is people understanding the situation we're in and responding positively. And folks, I'm just going to go ahead and just jump in here. I want to let everyone know that they are listening to KBUT Community Radio for the entire Gunnison Valley. Uh, and of course, um, there's a, just about 200 participants, it looks like, on our video conference. Information on joining that video conference is at kbut.org right now. You can call in and ask your questions by calling us here at the station. My uh, assistant is socially distanced in another part of the building and dropping me line, uh, dropping me questions here as we talk. Uh, that phone number is 970-349-7444. Uh, and you can also get on the video conference and ask your questions that way. I wanted to get CJ Malcolm in on our conversation because we haven't heard from CJ yet. We're more than halfway over and I can't believe we haven't heard from CJ yet. Um, I hear from CJ every morning during the morning briefing. And uh, CJ, I w have heard you talk about um, a lot of uh, the experience of EMTs during this COVID-19 crisis. And it seems to me as though... EMTs and emergency first responders have especially been hit hard. And some folks might, you know, take a look at some of the capacity numbers that we've seen at the hospital and not really reaching super critical amounts. But at the same time, it seems as though EMTs have really had to bust their butts to work really hard um, to keep people safe. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it's like to work as an emergency first responder in the Gunnison Valley? What makes it difficult? Um, I know we've already talked about the fact that we don't have an ICU. Um, and yeah, w tell us a little bit about that if you would. Sure, Chris. First off, I'm really sorry you have to listen to me every single morning. Not at all. Um, <laughs> I apologize to all of you out there that have to deal with that. That being said, uh, what is life like is a EMS provider here in Gunnison and have we been hit hard? You know, we've been hit hard as hard as anyone else. This is such a unique situation. Um, and it's, it's hard to adjust to this, whether you're a resident or you're the public health director or a nurse or a paramedic or a business owner. It's, it's unbelievable times. Um, that being said, uh, our volume has completely shifted. As you can imagine, people aren't coming here to recreate. We're, we're traditionally in a ski season right now. We get a tremendous amount of trauma calls around this time, head injuries, as well as MVAs 
that's a motor vehicle accident, car crashes. Um, and it's completely shifted to dealing with this, uh, this virus. Um, as a matter of fact, it shifted so much that uh, Gunnison Valley Hospital EMS, as well as Crested Butte EMS, have combined services to try to um, just unify together and beef up our our response as well as just resiliency, our county resiliency in working with these corona cases. Um, another place where EMS plugs in where you could say we've uh, been exhausted is we've plugged into the incident command system in a lot of different areas. I'm one of the two unified commanders. I'm sharing that with Joni Reynolds. Uh, I have uh, EMS group supervisors that are plugged in into the incident command chain. Uh, Michael Taylor, one of our captains, EMS captains, was responsible with Melissa Post, a National Park Service employee with running the call center. And so EMS has been tasked and plugged in all over the system. So this is a unique situation for us in some regards. In other regards, this is part of the normal routine of a provider. Uh, paramedics and EMTs are used to the what's called the incident command structure as well as firefighters and police officers. For the rest of the county, incident command is probably a, a new term for them. So this is something that we're somewhat norm, uh, used to, let's just say. What is life like working here as well? It's very, very different. Um, working as a paramedic uh, in a rural setting in comparison to an urban environment is quite different. A call for us out here can last hours sometimes uh, a day we had a call this a uh, few days ago up in taylor park that was a eight hour call down in denver or colorado springs or montrose you're looking at 30 minute long calls to one hour uh, calls so our service has to really be prepared for extremely lengthy calls um, so that also brings into question the way we practice medicine here in an urban environment, traditionally, you have a hospital that is within, let's say, 10 minutes of where your location is. Here, if you're up in Taylor Park, uh, at the edges of the district, out in Monarch, or down County Road 114, towards Sawatch, um, you're out there all alone. So traditionally, services like ours, Crested Butte EMS and Gunnison Valley EMS, we're looking for extremely experienced providers, usually folks with anywhere from 10 to 30 years of experience, there were previously flight medics, um, even previously nurses with ICU experience, because our level of responsibility in dealing with a sick individual out here, we're with you for a lot, lot longer. Uh, so we have to have what's called a, a larger scope of practice, um, where we're, some of our medics are, are practicing more traditional nursing ICU type skills than what you would see down in an urban city environment. Um, and, you know, here's a general question for anybody associated with the healthcare system right now. Um, I don't know if I've actually heard anyone quite say this officially, but have we flattened the curve? Have we successfully protected our healthcare system here in the Gunnison Valley? What are the chances that the situ situation could still become critical? I'll go ahead and answer that. Uh, one of our early objectives uh, in ICS, uh, what, what we do is we set objectives was to protect our healthcare system with the expressed purpose of flattening that curve. Um, we didn't want to have an overrun for our emergency medical services, 
our doctor's offices, uh, as well as the hospital that was seen in some other counties within Colorado, as well as throughout the nation where floods of people, whether they're panicked or sick or whatever, flooded these systems and created a, a real safety situation. Um, so we got in the game early. It was a stressful week, uh, but with the um, proactive public health orders, we absolutely, in my mind, flattened this curve. As Joni mentioned, we've hit a plateau phase. We're still seeing sick individuals, but instead of seeing a rapid spike of sick, that could easily overwhelm our, our infrastructure, our medical infrastructure. We, we were able to push that over into a plateau phase and, and deal with this over a few weeks of, of time versus a couple of days of just absolute chaos. So yes, we uh, achieved that objective. I'm very proud to say everyone that's on this, this Zoom conference had a hand in that to protect the sanctity of healthcare uh, and protect the public. Um, I have another question for Joni. Joni, you've expressed some pretty um, obvious frustration over the lack of testing kits. Um, I've heard you, you call it unacceptable. Uh, abysmal was probably the, the, the harshest language I've heard. To your knowledge, what should have happened with testing um, that hasn't happened? Why are you frustrated? You know, what's the difference between what you think should have happened and what's happening? Thanks, Chris. I have been frustrated with the testing, and there's lots of folks across the nation that are frustrated with the testing. The reality is there's an inadequate number of test kits available in any community to do mass testing. And in any outbreak, you really want to be able to characterize and really look at your outbreak and where it's impacting and who's being impacted in the community. And in our case, we really had to rely on subjective data versus the objective data of actually having um, testing results. And so what we have is tremendous input from the community about what they saw, what symptoms they experienced, and when those symptoms started, and what symptoms they had, versus having tests to be able to confirm if individuals were or were not exposed to the virus, if they tested positive or negative. And in reality, it would have been ideal to have done mass testing, say, in the town of Crest Butte on a random sample, and so we invited folks that to come in that whose last name started with S or last name started with B and ask them to be tested so that we could actually see just randomly what percentage of our population is actually testing positive. Not being able to do that, you're flying somewhat blind. You don't actually know who all is impacted in the community other than those that have been tested. And again, those test results are just limited in a community of our size, having 100 positive tests. It's really a tiny number, 300 total tests is really a small amount when you think about 18,000 residents throughout the county. And the same is true at the state level. The state level that has 7 million and they've had about 7,000 tests. And so it's a really small representation of the community. So are you able to say, to point to something that says this is what went wrong and this is why we didn't have enough testing? I'd say um, the only thing I could point to was that we did not have the stockpile reserves of those test kits available. Part of that was related to the um, you know, lack of preparedness across the globe for a pandemic of this scale. But much of that was related to we, the test supplies just couldn't be produced fast enough. Most of those test supplies likely come out of countries that were impacted by this pandemic. 
Um, and I just kind of wanted to back up and maybe clarify on something, but I, is, is your, your initial sort of, uh, do you believe that by the time the, the governor's order to lift social distancing, um, by April 26th, will there be enough testing? Will you feel comfortable with the amount of testing to, in order to lift, you know, the social distancing here in Gunnison County? I know we've gone over this question, but it, you know, I just kind of wanted to zoom in on it um, as as much as I can. I mean, are, is testing going to be adequate at that point um, for you to feel comfortable lifting social distancing rules uh, by the 26th? Yeah, and my answer is I don't know. I'm hopeful, and I see lots of signs for the validation testing that's happening both in our community and throughout the nation. So I'm hopeful that the test supplies are going to come and we're going to have that type of testing available. But I think any testing that we have available we're going to have the best minds figure out how to use that to the maximum effect so that we can move into the next chapter. And I think that next chapter needs to be collective and it needs to be paramount thinking about how to do that. I do think testing is an underpinning that would be critical, but I think using any testing we have available, even on a limited scale, to that maximum design will help us. I'll add to what Joni said there, there as well. We spent hours this morning with our research unit and situation unit, uh, which is full of statisticians, physicians, scientists, discussing this exact point and preparing for a strategy if and when we do receive adequate testing and we have some great prospects out there, um, how to adequately deploy that and, and deploy it as rapidly as we possibly can. One of those is the point of care units called Abbott, which Gunnison Valley Hospital has three of those point of care machines. We're very hopeful about this machine. Uh, we're in process of validating it, uh, essentially ensuring that the machine will be as accurate as possible, and then trying to pick some tactics of how to adequately get this test out to the community so that we can really scientifically and objectively base our decisions for relaxing certain public health order measures. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem as though we here and around the nation where everyone's sitting around waiting for testing and then we, maybe we'd have a better idea of when um, the economy can be opened back up again. And that seems to be the answer across the board. Uh, however, there's plenty of things that we can be doing right now to help um, jumpstart our economy. And perhaps in the last 13 minutes of our conversation, we can talk about uh, reopening and economic recovery and so on and so forth. Um, and I believe Andrew has some questions in that regard. Yeah. And, and so we've, we've received a number of questions, not only tonight are they flooding in, but, you know, prior to this event and, uh, you know, Joni specifically, what, what are the plans for the next four weeks to get people back to work? You know, how are we working proactively to get people tested and back to work? What are what are we doing to acquire those tests? Um, are there three or four steps you can share that we're considering to maybe reopen the county? Um, I know you've spoken to the dance a number of times. What are some of those dance moves that we're looking at? Yeah, I, I, this is paramount in my mind. This is a critical juncture for us in this outbreak. Um, as we have um, landed at the top of that, plateau and we are, we have been successful in flattening the curve, but I expect that this curve is going to last for a long time. And frankly, it's going to last until we have a very high percentage of the population, 80% or more that's been exposed and developed antibodies, or we have a vaccine or both, which may be, the, which may be many months away. 
And so in the short term, in the next few weeks, I would anticipate looking at some of the lower risk um, opportunities to be able to reconnect um, in the community in different ways. And so some of those might be related to children that may, that may have a much lower um, risk of actually spreading the disease. And so while child care centers have been closed for a month, there may be an opportunity to look at that um, as one path. And again, the research unit is trying to find the data to help support uh, change in the shifts. One of the things we're trying to do is, is really quantify how low have we reduced our infectivity rate, how many people get infected from one person who's positive or one person who's been infected. You might recall early on this um, infectivity rate looked to be about three or four, meaning one person who got sick would get three to four other people getting sick, and that's why it had this explosive type of exponential sharp rise in cases initially. Um, the goal in this phase that we've been in has really been to reduce it down to less than 0.5, and it seems as though our data may support that we've been successful in even lower than that. So in the long term, one of the measures is to try to keep that at a 1, 1.0. So that's the dance part. If we open up this, does that raise us up to 1.5, or does that raise us up to 2, or does that get us to 0.75? Some of those are some scientific calculations that have never been done, and some of those are being done on a disease that we've not seen across the globe before. And so some of this is speculation and science being put together and making an art, if you will, of trying to predict our math going forward. But I do, um, as CJ said, we spent hours this morning working with the science and research group, really asking them some of the critical questions and having them really reach out and look into some of those um, questions to bring back more data and insights for us so that I can help to guide those next decisions. And, and so, you know, this process, you know, this dance feels like it, it could go on, you know, for months. And, you know, I think there's a lot of question, particularly within the business community on, you know, are we going to have any semblance of a summer tourism business? Um, is there anything you can um, speak to in that front? I can tell you that that weighs heavy on me to think how can we do this and how can we do this safely and still embrace all the members of our community. Just like Jonathan said, visitors to our community, residents in our community, part-time residents in our community, they're all really important aspects of our community and finding those paths to really make sure we do that in a way that's really thoughtful and safe without an insurance policy. And so I'll just say that's one of the reasons I describe it as a dance, Andrew. I think there'll be some side steps and there might even be some back steps at times. There may be some strategies that we try that really the risk is too great that we start to see cases increase. And once we see cases increase, we might have to take a different measure that goes in a different direction and not that forward momentum. I don't expect this to be linear. That's the one thing I don't expect. I expect there will be twists and turns and things that will surprise us and things that we won't be happy about. I just don't expect it'll be step one, two, three, four, straightforward. And so along those same lines, um, you know, with kind of looking to the future, uh, it was announced last week that One Valley Leadership Council uh, was gonna begin work on mid and long-term uh, recovery plans. Um, Jonathan, what are some of these, uh, mid and long-term factors that are of most concern? What, you know, what steps is this, uh, you know, leadership council taking? Sure, so I think a, a fair number of folks are familiar with the One Valley Leadership Council has been the, the guiding group that came out of uh, the One Valley Prosperity Project and has been working for years now on 
uh, different issues around our economy, how to expand it, how to fortify it, also how to help our local businesses uh, grow and, and, and be even more successful. Um, and what we realize is that we have a couple different pieces working uh, in tandem. So immediately uh, as the realities of COVID-19 became very evident to what this was gonna do, not just our community, our state, our country, but around the globe, um, we began a, a county economic task force that's made up of a lot of our municipal partners, business owners, uh, staff from the towns and the county um, and electeds and, and working with the ICE lab to look at short term. What are the federal programs? What are going to be the state run programs? How, do, how can we get some immediate relief to our business owners and, and to individuals in our community uh, who are going to have those immediate impacts? And then what we realize is that th that's addressing a lot of the short term issues. Um, the OVLC group can start facilitating, you know, that strategic plan and incorporating what these others are doing as well. So it's not that one's out in front of the other. They're looking at different elements. And to Joni's point, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of twists and turns on the health front. And we've recognized that we are having a health crisis followed right behind it with an economic crisis. And so, you know, trying to anticipate what are these opportunities? What does it look like if we don't have a tourism-based summer as robust as normal or not as normal? Um, and what are those long-term programs and opportunities for our community? How can we rethink and re-examine um, our opportunities? How do we utilize what comes online first as far as opportunities for our community? How do we plan for the long-term? So I'd say there's a lot more questions than answers, but we've got uh, the right people in our community grappling with those includes our business community, our banking community, um, and, and business experts and expertise uh, within our community, as well as reaching out to our state and federal partners on this as well. And, and one one thread that I've I've seen come up uh, recently in chats is that um, you know maybe we can look at this as an opportunity to to reshape who we are and, and, you know, fix some of the issues that, that we maybe had previously. And, and you know, what could we do as Gunnison Valley um, and what would our economy look like after this crisis has subsided? Yeah, no, uh, trying, uh, will our economy be different or look different after this crisis? I imagine it will be. And, and it's, that's a really hard question to unpack because it's, it, it's, it's really peering in, into the unknown. What I do know is that, you know, we see tourism as, as a big element within our economy, but interestingly enough, Gunnison County has a, a, you know, we have an oil and gas as part of our economy. We have coal mining as part of our economy. Uh, some of the largest timber harvest uh, that we've seen in this valley in a long time are happening uh, right now. And so some of these other elements that maybe we don't see as front and center, but are still elements within our, in our economy, um, show that we have some diversity, maybe more so than, than some other counties in Western Colorado, but we're going to have to continue to look at diversifying, but also how to uh, anticipate, you know, some large event like this is incredibly important um, for people in our community to understand um, that resiliency is important to build around uh, your business model, but there's some things, and I think a, a global pandemic is one that is, is very hard to respond to very different than saying having a large scale forest fire or some other kind of large scale but isolated emergency within a community. Um, and, and so you're, you're asking me the tough question is what will it look like after the crisis? Um, like I said, that's, that's a really hard question to answer. Will it be different? Uh, I would imagine so. And will we have to work on and build into the elements of resiliency and, and redundancy for our community uh, so that we can weather uh, 
you know, hard events like this as time goes by. Absolutely. Can I do a quick follow up there? What what are the first industries? What are the first sectors of the economy that any of you see opening up first? Maybe the first three, if you can think of them. <laughs> well, I, I I would say that uh, as you've seen, some of the important segments of our of our economy. Let's take our construction, uh, for example. Uh, Joni was quick to figure out what elements of that industry can continue to work if they have the best practices in place. What are the mechanisms to enforce those? How can we find a way? to allow some existing opportunities to continue. The same has happened with, with food service. Uh, you know, there is still um, some of the extractive industries continue because they're not necessarily personnel intensive as much as maybe that uh, kind of more tourist related. So some things are going right now. They're going differently and they look different than they normally do and they're functionally different. But I do see Joni really working on our behalf to strike that balance between Let's look at it through the health lens first. That's our first. And then right behind that is an economic lens. And where can we and how can we find opportunity to allow some of those activities when the health practices can be met and those safety measures can be can be seen? Um, how can we continue some of those opportunities? And one question to, to segue off of that, um, you know, the we are not currently allowing anybody that's over 60 to work that's not in an essential service. And, uh, you know, could we look at loosening some of those restrictions for, you know, folks that are in a job that they are isolated or by themselves, um, but not otherwise considered essential? Um, could that be an area that we, we open up? Um, yeah, I, I agree, Andrew. Those absolutely. I think it's frustrating when you have to issue orders for an entire community or for you know our entire county. And um, frankly, there's been literally hundreds, well over a thousand exemption requests that I've reviewed. And so there's a lot of nuances to consider in finding those paths. I think will be important. But I agree with you, Andrew. Some of those are some of the things that we can look at. Are there ways for us to provide the protection and still loosen some of those restrictions that we currently have? And so uh, you know, another uh, one on top of that, uh, you know, there, there are a number of Valley residents, you know, including students at Western that are from all over the country and, you know, may have family elsewhere. Uh, you know, many of them are experiencing job loss. Many of our temporary uh, community members that are seasonal, um, you know, what happens if they have to go find work elsewhere? You know, what advice would we give them uh, that, you know, those folks that maybe feel like they, they need to leave. Yeah, I, I hear you. I think that the impact here in our community has been tremendous as well as it's been tremendous across um, our nation and across our globe. And it, it saddens me to know how much it's impacting individuals like you described for those uh, university students and for our residents and for their you know, our non-full-time residents and for our visitors, the impact's been tremendous. I, I think finding the resources that can support you individually at this time is really important. And so I would um, encourage everyone to think about what are those resources, both from a physical and a monetary health, but also, you know, our emotional and our mental health. I think those are um, resource ties that folks want to take advantage of. And I think families and friends and support systems are important. 
And what what could we do, uh, you know, as a county to maybe tie in some of these, you know, temporary seasonal employees? Uh, how, how do we tie some of them into our recovery efforts? Um, you know, is there anything that we can do or or, you know, give them a role to play? Yeah, you know, we have literally hundreds of volunteers that are helping in this response in addition to um, individuals that have volunteered from different sectors like CJ mentioned earlier, from um, the medical sector, from the business sector, from an array of sectors around the valley. And so I do think there's opportunities, and I think finding those connecting points would be really important. And maybe one path forward is to really bring folks in that are interested in finding those paths through our volunteer coordinator. I think there's th that may be the intersect to start with. Now, you know, we we've obviously done a really good job of coming together as a community here. And, uh, you know, what have we heard from some of our counterparts or colleagues, uh, you know, around the state or the nation, you know, how is our reaction compared to some of the other uh, folks that you've been interacting with? I'd love, I'd love to hear that uh, question answered from everybody on the panel tonight. What well, I'll start on, you know, it's, it's been really, um, one, it's been tough what we've had to do as a community. I don't ever want to not highlight that enough. Um, but interestingly, from a county perspective, the outreach I've gotten from neighbors, uh, even in some of the hardest hit counties, Eagle, Pitkin, Summit, um, really asking us for advice and guidance. Uh, we're hearing it from San Miguel County, Uray County. I was on a call just yesterday with folks from uh, Montrose and Delta County and Mesa County as they're starting to have emerging cases and a more of a pattern of, of cases in their community. So a lot of folks are, you know, looking at Gunnison County being as proactive as we are and, and, and really saying what's working, what's not. Um, can we can we borrow some of the, the data you're putting online? Can, can we borrow some of your, you know, you guys have done a lot of work around economic recovery and things like that. Can we just beg, borrow and steal some of the information that you're putting up on your countywide website to support businesses and people in our community? And so I think uh, that's an acknowledgement of, of work well done, um, though I don't think anyone's envious of the hard decisions that everyone on this panel has to make. Thank you for that answer, Jonathan. Jonathan Houck is with Board of County Commissioners. Um, we're we're going to call these our closing sort of round here, folks, because we're two minutes now, three minutes uh, past 7 p.m. We have our live local DJ standing by here. Um, and I just want to make sure that we get this question answered by everybody on our panel. Jody Leonard, what are you hearing from colleagues from outside of the Gunnison Valley um, that, you know, makes you think about what, what we, the situation that we have here? Yeah, thanks, Chris, for the opportunity here. Um, I got to say, as an infection control preventionist, we're kind of a tight group to begin with. Um, <laughs> we, we really rely on each other for a lot of resources. And so it was quite a learning curve for me, um, being one of the first in the state, at least, to start out with some of this outbreak um, happening here. And and I um, know Caitlin and, and a couple other IPs like in the Vail Valley area very well. And so, you know, we've worked really hard to build policies and protocols for hospital staff to follow. And, and it's been refined and it's been changed and it's been edited just like almost every aspect of this entire pandemic. Um, and now we get the opportunity to really share that with the other communities that need it. So, you know, if an IP from Durango, maybe that I've never met face to face calls me and says, hey, do you have a protocol about this? We share it. We, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel here. 
and we all get the opportunity to come together and and provide um, the resources that everyone needs that that maybe it's not defined yet. This is all new. It's all new territory. And so we get to really journey this together. And I'll emphasize um, as one of my last statements here that in every aspect of this, whether it's medical, economical, or, or just uh, mental well-being, this is new territory. We've never done this. Um, so people need to understand that there will be mistakes made along the way. Um, and we're going to figure it out. We're a human race and we're we're bound to determine, man, to make this thing happen and make it happen well. So um, that's that's what I think Gunnison uh, folks come together and do the best. Great. Jody Leonard, viral infection specialist with Gunnison Valley Health. Thank you for that. Uh, CJ Malcolm, emergency services. Um, can you tell us what you're hearing from cohorts from around the state and the, and the nation? Yeah, we're hearing great things from our peers in other counties and other services and agencies. You know, when this thing started out, it was it was a nightmare. It's it still is a nightmare. I mean, let's be honest. This has been incredibly difficult. Like Jody just said, like everyone said, we've never experienced anything like this, um, except you know, 1918, 100 years ago, and in that generation is is gone and so preparing for this thing was incredible early on in this event uh we hosted a couple of phone calls with some of our neighbors that were getting hit hard and that was a real awakening for me personally and for for individuals in the room listening to what their healthcare systems were going through what their emergency services and public health systems were going through it was it was a a scary moment for me personally. And I, I feel very blessed that we had that insight. I think it might've been in the first week that we were ramping things up here. Uh, and it gave us some insight to get together, to learn to communicate with all of the different communities out there. We have several different townships within Gunnison County and we got together quick, we communicated and we developed plans together. Uh, and we got ahead of head of the bowl on that one. And I feel very proud and, and fortunate that that really, I think, where we shined in seeing what was going on in other communities was our communication with one another. It wasn't perfect. We preached grace for one another because we knew we were going to make mistakes. But at the end of the day, we just kept going forward. And uh, we have an, a remarkable team eclectically developed from all over this community. Uh, and so that's that's a proud moment for me, and 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 it's getting out there that Gunnison County is is nailing this, and we're very proud of it. We own our mistakes, but we're just focusing on on getting through this thing. Thank you so much, CJ. Uh, and finally, Joni Reynolds, Director of Public Health for Public Health for Gunnison County. What are you hearing from colleagues uh, from around the state and around the country, and what does it make it what does it make you think about uh, the situation that we're in here in Gunnison County? Um, I will ditto what my colleagues said in their comments, and I would say that with great pride, I can share experiences that we've had here in Gunnison County and early on from the largest metropolitan front range um, public health directors to some of our small neighboring counties. Folks uh, reached out and asked for input and guidance and asked some questions that seemed impossible to them but we had uh, navigated that landscape already. And one of the questions I remember was talking about um, having a convening and talking about that first set of public health orders. 
and being able to share that information with municipal leaders and the county leadership and business leaders and folks throughout the community. And the um, colleagues were overwhelmed at the concept of doing that type of uh, communication, let alone actually executing that type of communication. So I, I feel incredibly blessed to be here in this community, incredibly blessed to be part of not only this team, but this county who's rallied and responded in ways that I didn't imagine, I, in ways that have been um, the best of humanity and at times of the most challenging, frustrating moments. Still, I've seen such beauty and support from individuals and from community organizations that at times it's been overwhelming to see. And I think uh, being here in this valley is a blessing for so many um, residents along with this myself and my family that I just appreciate all of the efforts that have been made in systems, in households, in schools, and throughout our community. Great. Well, thank you very much, Joni Reynolds, Director of Public Health here in Gunnison County. And thank you to everybody who joined us on the panel this evening. Um, it's been great having these conversations, getting to know what's happening on the ground and um, what's, what's going to happen in the future um, during this crisis. And we appreciate the chance to hear from you all. So thank you for that. Thanks, uh, Chris. And we just wanted to mention, folks, that we do have a number of questions that we were not able to get to. We uh, have a very uh, active public, and they're really interested to know a lot about what's going on. And we are going to do our best to get answers. Um, you know, we're going to be compiling those questions. I believe the county will be working to um, answer those questions as best as possible. Uh, and I can say the same goes for us here at KBUT. Make sure to tune in next week uh, for our panel discussion. We are doing a town hall. We will not be doing a video conference, but we're going to be doing it here on KBUT as we do uh, Mondays at 6 p.m. That will be kids and parents. We'll have representatives from the Gunnison RE1J, the Gunnison Watershed RE1J School District, uh, as well as a pediatrician and some experts on e-learning, which is an issue these days. Uh, we're now 10 minutes past 7 p.m. Bobby's World is coming up next here on KBUT. Thank you so much for joining us this week, folks. My name's Christopher Biddle. We'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.